Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon to you who are probably watching this later in the day. Um, I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, today's episode is just going to be kind of a casual conversation, discussion about my journey in the area of soteriology. That's kind of where I've been settled for the past six months or so, really drilling into it and trying to study and know the subject on a, on a deeper level. And so I'm going to be talking about that. But before I do, I do want to just say a thank you to all my Patreons who support me. Um, you guys really do make this channel possible. Without you, I would not be able to put videos out, put podcasts out, put any content out. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart, all those who have supported me month after month. And if you would like to support this ministry, if you like the content that I put out and you want to see more of it, you don't want it to end, then I would encourage you to click the link um, right up in the in the cover photo if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you'll find the link somewhere. Um, but you can click that link. You could subscribe to the Patreon page, different tiers, and at different tier levels, you have different benefits. So for example, there's one benefit where you get a mug in the mail. You have a weekly Bible study on a Zoom call with me. Um, there's others where I'll even send you a free book in the mail every single month without fail. And so if, if you want to support my ministry, I would really appreciate if you go over to the Patreon page and become a patron. And if you cannot support the ministry, continue to pray that God would bless others through what I'm doing. And with that, let's get into today's episode. So I also apologize if I sound a little congested. My allergies have been bothering me this morning. So hopefully the allergy pill I took will, will kick in and won't be too much of a problem. So really today I want to focus kind of on the Ordo Salutis of salvation and just kind of detailing how I've processed that and how my uh, thoughts overall on salvation as a whole have changed over the past uh, six months or so. Um, and really, I, I should start by saying that this this change really started when I began studying the church fathers on a deeper level. So before six months ago, besides a few writings here and there, I was mostly focused on reading Reformed theology. I was reading Calvin, I was reading Luther, I was reading uh, Voss, and all these different Reformed theologians who are excellent, don't get me wrong, I haven't lost any of my respect for them and their scholarship, but I my, my window in terms of what I was studying and what I was learning was very narrow. And so I wanted to expand my horizons. And I mean, really for me, I wanted to know, kind of, here's the question. The question that went through my head was this. How did the earliest Christians worship God? And am I worshiping God the way that they did? That, that was the question. I wanted to go back. I wanted to read the earliest Christian writings. And I wanted to find out how were they practicing corporate worship together? How were they worshiping God? How did they approach salvation? How did they approach all these different things, theology in general, I guess you could say. And I want to worship like that. 
And so really my goal in, in starting this whole study in soteriology and in general my studies have been really trying to make sure that my theology, what I teach, what I talk about is apostolic. And unfortunately, I've gotten quite a bit of pushback from multiple people on all sorts of different platforms. I'm not singling anybody out. Some of it's been very constructive conversation, but much of it has been people that are very focused in a very specific sect of theology and are not really as concerned about making sure that their faith is apostolic, but making sure that they're being consistent with the tradition that they find themselves in. Now, that that isn't to slight anybody, of course, but I'm uncomfortable with the idea of simply having a theology and and defending that theology if I can't trace its origins back into the apostolic period. And so, really, salvation's the biggest question. How do I get to heaven? How do I stand before God righteous? Um, and so I wanted to know, what did the early church teach about this, and how has this developed throughout history? What does Scripture say about this? Ultimately, what does Scripture say about this, and how was that interpreted throughout the ages and the centuries? And I want to align myself with that. And really, this comes down to a fundamental change in my philosophy in terms of how I view um, just approaching theology in general, you know, as opposed to... Uh, and I, I said this in an earlier video I made this week, but I think a lot of people, they approach theology where they read the Bible, they come to a conclusion, maybe they read some books and those books help influence the way they read the Bible. They come to a conclusion and then they go and they look for a church that aligns with that, that fits what they think scripture teaches. And I think that especially in Protestantism, this is a very, very uh, large chunk of how Protestants approach theology. They study the Bible, they come to a conclusion, and then they go and seek a church that fits that. And I've really done a complete shift from that, because that, that is how I approach theology largely. I've shifted from that into more of a, what did the church say? And I'm going to conform myself to, to that. And it really did boil down to the question of authority. How, who, who do I trust? I, I can't put 100% stock into my interpretation. You know, of course, what, of course, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's no use in studying or practicing exegesis or hermeneutics and stuff. The, the word of God was given to us to study, to know, to learn. But... The study and the learning and the knowing should be done in the context of the church. It shouldn't be me, my Bible, off somewhere coming up with conclusions. And I would say the majority of Protestants, at least confessional Protestants, would agree with this. But I think in practice, it sometimes can be a little bit inconsistent when you say that we need the church to interpret the scriptures, but then you discard much of the church in your interpretation of scriptures if your interpretation is different than, say, the consensus of the church. So there were a few things for me, like the Lord's Supper and baptismal regeneration, that when I studied this out in church history, I really can't find any writings in any father throughout any period of time up before the Reformation 
where they taught something other than baptismal regeneration and where they taught something other than the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so when I saw this and realized that I had been believing that Christ was just, it was more of a symbol, and then transitioning from that into more of uh, Calvin's spiritual presence idea, I became quite discouraged realizing that I was following a man-made teaching that popped up only during the Reformation. And the same with baptismal regeneration. I had always approached it as a symbol. And then as I became a little bit more sacramental through Reformed theology, um, I saw it as a an entrance into the New Covenant community. But I didn't see it as having a, an actual effect in terms of regeneration at all. And yet... I cannot find anyone in church history besides, you know, a few uh, heretics throughout history and stuff, but no no actual church fathers that ever thought of it as anything other than a regenerative act of God. And so this kind of called into question reformed theology as a whole for me, where I looked at it and I went, "Okay, reformed theology is teaching things that I can't find anywhere in the apostolic church, um, that's a problem. And, and from there, what, after I kind of discovered these things, I really decided I just need to do a deep dive into soteriology as a whole. How are we saved? How are we saved? That is the big question. And I came to kind of see salvation articulated throughout church history as a process not as a moment in time conversion experience or praying a prayer. And again, I'm not I'm trying not to lump everybody into this. I know Protestants don't view it as just a prayer or walking an aisle, but there is an emphasis on past salvation. You are you saved? And the emphasis of the New Testament seems to be on this idea of salvation as a future event, even for Christians. Paul talks about how we're saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved, and the emphasis is on the will be saved. And so I would say that all Christians would affirm, even if you're a Calvinistic Christian who believes in the preservation of the saints, we would affirm that perseverance is a requirement to attain eternal life. So if somebody calls themselves a Christian, walks with God for 20 years and then falls away, there's no Calvinist that would say, well, because they were saved at one point, according to their confession anyways, that means that they're saved regardless of whether or not they walked away. No, a Calvinist would say, well, if they walked away, they were never of us. They were never saved to begin with. And so even a Calvinist who believes in the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints would argue that perseverance is a necessity to attain eternal life. And so the way I approach it is exactly the same way. If we don't persevere in the faith, if we don't stand fast in our faith, if we don't hold fast to the confession that was handed to us, the gospel that was handed to us, the gospel that was preached to us, if we fall away, well, we can't expect to then attain eternal life simply because we prayed a prayer 20 years in our past or we walked an aisle or we had a conversion experience. The fruit of a true Christian and of a Christian that will attain eternal life is perseverance. The ones who persevere to the end shall be saved. 
Now, now in saying that, I'm not I'm not arguing that the perseverance comes based upon us and our efforts and our actions. Perseverance is solely the work of God's grace in our lives. And God's grace at work in our lives brings us to that completion. But there is a cooperation that takes place. And I think that the more that I've studied soteriology, especially going into the scriptures, the more I've realized that there is an emphasis on the cooperation of a Christian with the grace of God. And so... I don't really have like a specific order that I'm going to be going through this, but starting with with the idea of perseverance being the linchpin of attaining eternal life. If someone does not persevere, they will not be saved. A Calvinist would say they were never saved, and an Augustinian or you know a Thomist would would argue that they were saved, but that they abandoned that confession, that faith, and fell away. And I would agree with the Augustinian understanding that salvation can be forsaken by a true Christian. And coming to this decision, this was probably the biggest transition. And again, this is the linchpin for me that led to everything else. Because if you if you admit that somebody can be a true born-again Christian and fall away from that faith, from a true saving faith, well, then you have to approach soteriology differently. Um, and I think scripture is abundantly clear. I don't think that the warnings that Paul gives, like in, uh, is it Romans 11? In Romans 11 about the olive tree, how if you, you can be cut off too. Like if you, if you disbelieve, you will be cut off too. And the Jews are cut off. Why? Because of unbelief. So they were in, but now they're cut off. And obviously the tree, I don't think, represents salvation as much as it represents part of the covenant community. But I also think that it's very difficult to make the case that those in the covenant community are unsaved people. The Old Testament seems to, I think it's in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel seems to indicate that regeneration is is part of being in the new covenant. And this is the argument the Baptists use against many reformed paedo-baptists. Because paedo-baptists would say that through baptism we are truly in the covenant, but just because we're in the covenant does not mean that we're necessarily regenerated saved believers. And I would say that I think it kind of does. And so Paul also talks to the Jews who would be perfected through the law. He says, Christ will be of no avail to you. You have fallen from grace. And again, the question is, how do you fall from something you never possessed? I find it disingenuous to say that these people never received the the grace of God salvifically. They never received it. God didn't give it to them because they're not elect. And yet they're falling from it. How do you square those two things? I think you have to do a lot of leaps in order to square the idea that one can fall from grace that they were never offered. Second Thessalonians 2, because they refuse to believe, God sends them a strong delusion so that they might not believe the truth and thus be saved. Now, if these people are in no way, shape, or form able to respond to the gospel, if there's no grace offered to them 
because, uh, at least salvifically, if there's no salvific grace offered to them, then why is it that God is sending them a strong delusion so that they might not believe? Why would he need to prevent people from believing that are already totally depraved in mind and heart and action so that they would never believe in the first place? It, do- it just doesn't make sense. It seems to me, as I read scripture, that damnation is a response of God, not an initiation. Salvation initiates with God. God initiates grace. God initiates opening the eyes of the blind. God initiates salvation. The human will is liberated by the grace of God to respond in faith. But if someone rejects that grace that God is giving, then God's damnation of that person, God's reprobation of a person, is a response to that person's hardened state of rebellion. He doesn't initiate it. And so that's where, to me, I, I, law, I kind of fell off the train with Calvinism. Is I, as I read scripture, I saw God's damnation, God's reprobation, as being a response to human action rather than God initiating it and humans doing it freely still, as a Calvinist would argue, but doing it because it was determined by God. So I, I, I definitely hold to the classical Augustinian uh, single predestination. God has predestined some to life, but if someone is damned, it is not because God has withheld salvific grace from them. It is because they have refused to believe. And that's the tension I hold. I don't try to go a whole lot further than that when it comes to predestination. But anyways, getting back to this idea of of perseverance being kind of the linchpin for me, I, I kind of recognized that that with all these passages that indicate you could fall away, someone who can taste in the Holy Spirit, share in the heavenly gifts, it become enlightened, which is often used to re- reference baptism, they can fall away. I can't reconcile that with the idea that this is still a totally depraved God-hater. I don't think anybody would describe a totally depraved person as somebody who is in the Holy Spirit, enlightened, sharing in the heavenly gifts, all of that. And again, I do think that there can be some validity to the covenant member idea, but I think the language in some of these passages is just far too strong to indicate mere covenant membership with a completely unchanged person. And so for me, I had to abandon the idea of preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints. And I still believe, obviously, that God's elect will persevere to the end, that, that, that infallibly will come to pass. But I do believe that fully, truly born-again Christians can fall away from the faith if they so choose. And I think the best place to illustrate this is when Paul is speaking of temptation. And he says, I think it's in uh, 2 Corinthians, but he says that there is no temptation that comes to you that's uncommon to man. And every temptation that comes to you, every temptation that comes to you, God will provide a way of escape and he will provide you the grace to resist it and overcome it. He will never give you more than you can handle, in other words, is the point that Paul is is getting at. God's never going to give you more than you can handle. If a temptation comes your way, he has provided sufficient grace to resist it, to say no to it, to overcome it, to conquer it. 
So the question then is, if this promise exists in Scripture, that God's grace is sufficient in helping us to overcome every temptation that comes into our lives, why do we sin? The only answer, the only possible answer, is we sin because we are resisting that grace that God has given us. We are looking at God's grace, acknowledging that it's there, and saying no and turning and going our own way. And so the question is, when it comes to salvation, and we have the promise that God will lose none, we have the promise that those who come to him he will never cast out, that no one can snatch them from his hands, why do we assume that means that we can't resist his grace? So, to to illustrate my point, if Jesus says, you are my sheep, no one can snatch you from my hand, or all that comes to me, I will never cast out. When we read that, we go, great, that means that I'm eternally secure and nothing can ever happen to me. Not even, I can't do anything. So, if, if that's true, if those passages are teaching eternal security in the way a Calvinist would interpret it, then when we get to the passage where Paul says that there's no temptation given to us that we cannot overcome with the grace of God then why don't we just assume that we're sinless? I mean, shouldn't it be impossible if God's promised that no temptation will overcome us through his grace? Well, well, no, because we admit that we can resist that. It doesn't change the reality on God's end. God is faithful. God will always give us grace to persevere. God will always give us grace to overcome. But that doesn't always mean that we take that grace. It doesn't always mean that we cooperate with that grace. And so in the case of salvation, Jesus Christ says, all that come to me, I will never cast out. Amen. There is never going to be a Christian on planet earth that is going to be cast out by Christ ever. Never has, never will be. However, if I choose to leave, that's, that's on me. I can't blame God for not keeping me. That's only me to blame for resisting his grace and his will. Now, I know that there are probably Calvinists that are upset right now at what I'm saying. But I think that we need to emphasize the fact that Scripture teaches human responsibility in such a way that precludes some of the assertions that Calvinists make. There are calls to endure, there are calls to persevere, there are calls to stay in Christ, there are calls not to fall away, there are warnings against all these things. And I cannot see those things as mere hypotheticals. I just, I just can't. I just can't. I think that Paul's language is explicit that these are realities that can actually happen to a Christian. If the Christian does not remain, they will be cut off. And I think the thing we need to remember is passages that teach God's faithfulness, God's grace for us, God's ability to keep, God's promises to justify all the way to glorify. Those are all true. I'm not nullifying those at all. I believe truly that God's grace is absolutely 100% sufficient, completely sufficient in bringing me from start to finish. And if Christ begins a good work, he will bring it to completion. But my will 
is still involved in this. And though I can't contribute anything to my staying with God, that is his grace that sustains, I can resist his grace and leave at the complete fault of my own. So the Augustine quote that really kind of changed my life, Augustine says, if we fall, we fall by our will. If we stand, we stand by God's will. And I love that quote because I think it illustrates so perfectly what I'm saying. If we're saved, we have nothing to boast in whatsoever because it is completely an act of God opening our eyes, giving us a new heart, instilling his spirit within us. I can't do any of that. I can't even initiate any of that. That is completely God's initiation, God's grace at work in me. And if I am born again, if I stand in the grace of God, and if I continue in the grace of God all the way until my glorification, the only boast I have is God because his grace is the only thing that sustains me, the only thing that keeps me. And if it were to leave me even for a second, I would be lost, utterly lost. So, on that side of things, I'm in complete agreement with the Calvinists. All by the grace of God, nothing in me, nothing in me sustains myself. However, where I differ is that I do believe that I do have a will that can resist the grace of God and can leave the grace of God. Now, if I don't leave the grace of God, that's because God's grace is sustaining me. But if I do leave the grace of God, that's because I have chosen something for myself that is contrary to God's intention and will. Now, does that mean that if I forsake God and end up in hell that I've somehow ruined God's plan and he didn't see? Of course not. I believe his foreknowledge is perfect. He has chosen whom shall be saved and his grace is upon those people. They will persevere to the end. And that's an infallible reality that will come to pass. So I can't do anything that will thwart that reality. If I go to hell, it's, it's God, God knows that. But if I go to heaven, God also knows that. And so nothing I can do can thwart that. But that doesn't change the fact that I have a will in the matter. I can forsake God. And if I remain with him, his grace is, is upholding me and sustaining me. But there is a cooperation. There is a cooperation with God's grace that I see plainly taught in scripture. And I see plainly taught throughout church history. The idea of eternal security, I don't see as being truly um, like articulated until Calvin. Prior to that, it seems to me that there was an understanding that Christians can fall away. There's an understanding that, that salvation is a cooperation between man's will and God's grace. And I find no reason to deny that simply because Reformed theology says that I should. I'm sorry. So that's kind of on the idea of falling away. And once you once you take that that jump and you say, okay, I don't think the Bible teaches eternal security, which by the way, in either case, I don't think we can have any, I don't think I can have any more assurance as a Calvinist than I do right now. Here's why. If you look at a, a room full of Calvinists, they all are Christians, they're going to say, we believe we're the elect. We believe that by God's grace, we, we will be brought to completion. We trust his promises to keep. Wonderful. That's beautiful. Now, if I were to ask all of those Calvinists, now how do you know that you guys are going to be walking with God in the next 20 years? Ultimately, they don't. 
And if they all stopped walking with God in 20 years, then they would have to admit, <clears throat> they would have to admit based on their system that they were never saved to begin with. Well, that's kind of an easy way to make sure that you maintain your doctrine, but that doesn't really change the dilemma. We, we can't see into the future, so I can't know for sure that I will be walking with God in 20 years. The only thing that I can do, same as the Calvinist, is right now, right now in my life, I can have assurance of my salvation based upon faith, based upon Christ, based upon promises in the sacraments. I can have that complete assurance right now with a hope and a trust that Christ who lives in me now will keep me and preserve me all the way to completion. But it would be arrogant for me to say that I will infallibly endure to the end right now because I don't know the future. And a Calvinist has the same problem. They could say they don't, but they have the same problem. Ultimately, they don't know if they will show to be a false convert 20 years from now, infallibly. Just like I don't know that I will show to have fallen away in 20 years from now. So how do I know that I'm going to be saved? It's by trust. It's by faith. By faith alone in Christ and his promises to keep, to, to persevere, and that those who God justifies, he will also glorify. It's, it's a trust in that. It's a complete trust in that right now. Looking to my baptism, looking to the Eucharist as reminders that I belong to Christ, looking to the church as a reminder that I belong to, to God's people, to Christ. And a Calvinist does the same exact thing. If you ask them, what is your hope? Nothing but Christ. In life and death, Christ, the cross. That's their hope. That's my hope too. And so it is that faith that lives out in a reality where I, I'm, I'm assured that I'm going to be glorified one day. I am, but not because I infallibly know the future or because I feel like my willpower to not fall away is strong enough, but because I trust God's promises and I trust that if I remain, as Paul says, he will never cast me out. He will never cast me out. And so I don't think that there's any difference in the level of assurance one can have. Two people, one's a Calvinist, one's not. They go around, fall away. Calvinist says, never saved. I say, they fell away from the faith. It makes no difference in the long run. At least in the way I think. It doesn't make a, a whole lot of difference in terms of the uh, level of assurance. It makes a huge difference in terms of your doctrine, but not a huge difference in terms of your level of assurance. So taking that, that was a very long-winded, I apologize, but taking that reality now and going to... Um, basically then how I see that process of salvation working out with that, you can see why with the new Testament, I emphasize the future salvation, because even though I'm saved in Christ, that, that salvation is never final until glorification. And I would say that all Christians would agree in many ways with that, that salvation is not final. We have the eschatological reality right now in Christ Jesus through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And in baptism, we're united, as Paul says, into Christ's death, that just as he was raised to newness of life, we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism is what God has given us, the sacrament, to unite us to the death of Christ and unite us to the resurrection of Christ. And so in that sense, we are saved, absolutely. The Bible's explicit that salvation is a past reality. But then, 
We also have this, this process of sanctification. We also have this process of growing in our faith, of being saved, where Christ is, is, is conforming us. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And as this process continues, its ultimate end is that we might be fully glorified, resurrected in a consummate sense, resurrected, and ultimately partake in this beatific vision of being, being united to the divine nature of God and, and experiencing God in that, right? In a completely full way, union with Christ in the fullest sense of the, of the word. And so... Obviously, we have union with Christ, but we still have the flesh. And so the past salvation is uniting us with the Spirit of God. The being saved is, is a dying to the flesh. And the will be saved is when the flesh is annihilated once for all. That's kind of a good way to look at it, is, is this idea of the flesh being annihilated. The flesh, the flesh uh, losing its grip on us through saved the flesh further losing its grip on us through sanctification, being saved, and the flesh fully being annihilated in glorification, will be saved. And so this also changes the way that I approach regeneration. Now, regeneration, most people, along with like conversion and salvation, they kind of lump it into this moment in time. Regeneration happens, boom, here, you're regenerated. Now, I think regeneration is a process. I think conversion is a process. Because I believe that I can fall away, I don't want to hold so tightly to this idea of salvation belonging completely to me without the perseverance part being emphasized. Because I see it so clearly in Scripture, I need to recognize that God is continuing a work in me that he began. And this is clear, I think it's in Philippians, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so salvation, when we are saved in baptism, that's just the beginning. The work is now being completed. So I am being regenerated by God. I am being converted by God throughout my life, with glorification being the final end to this process of regeneration and uh, salvation. And what's interesting is I think that Protestants have kind of jumped the gun because they go into Scripture and they just kind of look at it and they develop this very deep doctrine of regeneration and its order in the Ordo Salutis, regeneration preceding faith and all these different things. When scripture only uses the word, New Testament only uses the word regeneration once, and it's in reference to baptism being the washing of regeneration. So outside of that, though, that specific word doesn't show up. So the question is then, why do we have such a deeply developed dogmatic stance on what regeneration is? I think that it's kind of a strange way to approach exegesis is to find this one word and then go, okay, let's throw it into this order of salutis type type thing. And to me, it's just, it's not clear enough to say it's dogmatically in a moment in time or a process. And so I would agree it is a moment in time and it does precede faith by necessity. If God if, if what needs to change in me is I need a heart of flesh and I have a heart of stone, God's grace has to be present in my life, working into me this heart 
that that changes this this heart that that is softened to the truth of the gospel so that I may respond in faith. And my response in faith is part of that regenerating process. My repentance is part of that regenerative process. Baptism or being born again as as Christ tells Nicodemus that is part of the regenerative process where God takes me out of Adam and puts me and unites me with Christ. Um, and then throughout the Christian life, we are being regenerated through the hearing of the gospel on Sundays through the preacher. We are being regenerated through partaking in the Eucharist. And some would say, well, Jonah, that's sanctification. Agreed, it's sanctification. But part of being sanctified is being regenerated. What is sanctification other than holiness in us working its way out? Salvation that's been worked into us being worked out. And if something is being worked out and there's an actual change taking place within me as a person, I can't look at that and say that that's not a regenerative work in me where God is still doing something. And I think if we place regeneration all the way in the past where you were, you were dead in your sins and now you're alive and that's it, it's over, you're regenerated, it's done, you have that new heart completely done, it's a done deal, then the process of sanctification doesn't make as much sense. What, what is changing? Obviously, I'm growing in holiness, but how? If I'm already regenerated completely, it's done. If I'm already saved completely, it's done. If there's no further element there, then what is actually taking place in sanctification? To me, if we're going to be honest with the idea that sanctification is a working out, the salvation that has been given to us, then we need to recognize that this working out is manifesting itself in a true regenerative change in us. And so again, this is why I want to get away from the idea of a moment-in-time conversion or, or, uh, or regeneration or salvation, because even, even, in a, even in a framework where we think about it, which I think is a correct way to think about it, that our heart of stone is removed and we're replaced with a heart of flesh, there is a way to approach this where we can understand it as a process. God's grace is not a boom moment in time. You were dead, now you're alive. Now, yes, scripture says we were dead and we were alive, but the, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that we can't look at that as a process of going from death to life through the grace of God. So, for example, I was born into a Christian family. I was raised by Christian parents who brought me to church, who taught me the importance of a relationship with Christ, who drilled into my head the need for repentance, the need for a Savior, who taught me to read the scriptures even when I didn't feel like it. Um, who, who brought me to church even when I didn't want to go, um, who, who challenged me when I was walking in sin to walk in holiness. And I can't look at that, and this is as long as I can remember, I was born into this, born literally into this Christian family that treated me this way, that raised me this way from the earliest age that I can remember. Now, here's the beauty in that. I can't look at that and go, that's not a grace of God that was already regenerating me. If I if I looked at it and went, okay, no, that was just there, but then there was a moment in time where I went from death to life uh, later on where, boom, regeneration happened, I don't think I'm acknowledging how much of a grace that actually is. So being born into a Christian house, right there, that's a regenerative gr- grace from God. 
Having Christian parents who are actively instilling the Word of God in your life, bringing you to church, dedicating you to the Lord, that is an active regenerative grace in a Christian's life. And so for me, I can look back at that and see that as God's regenerative work, taking out my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh at a very early age, And that heart of flesh is becoming softer and softer and softer as time goes on because God's grace in regenerating me is still present, is still active, and is still working in my life in sanctification. Not everybody has a conversion story. You know, I I used to make up, I used to literally make up a testimony to try to sound more sophisticated. I would try to think of the darkest point in my life, and I would go, okay, that's that's pretty dark, that sounds good. Okay, now what was the most emotional experience I had in my life? Then I would take that very emotional experience, and I would look at it, I would go, okay, I think that's probably the best one to use as my testimony, as my conversion experience. So then I would tell everybody, this was the moment I was converted, and everybody would applaud, you know, the lights were dim as I'm telling the story, and... It was all a farce. I don't have a conversion moment in my life. That the, the moment that I came up with was just an emotional experience. It wasn't the moment I was saved. In fact, if I look back and I go, okay, when did it approximately occur? I don't remember. I don't remember. I know that as long as I can remember in my past, I was walking with the Lord. Not perfectly. Not always faithfully. But I can't remember a time that I was not a believing Christian. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I wasn't born again? Does that mean that I was not regenerated? Well, of course not. What it means is that God's regenerative work was such a process in my life that my entire life has been a conversion experience. My entire life has been a regenerative experience. And so I think that a much more healthy and biblical way to, to understand the scriptures is to recognize that, yes, there is a moment where, where we're saved, and I think we can look to baptism as that moment of being united with Christ in death and being raised to newness of life in Christ. But I also think we need to recognize that terms like salvation or regeneration need to be seen in terms of a process, in terms of something that takes place in a Christian's life, that grows in that Christian's life. And it happens differently. Like Paul... That was a conversion experience. But I wouldn't say that just because Paul was converted on, on the road to Damascus, that that means that his regeneration was finished and completed. Boom, there. I believe that Paul's regeneration began there, and it was a very stark contrast. God took him out of Adam, put him in Christ, But then that process began there and continued throughout the Apostle Paul's life. He was being regenerated from that point on. And ultimately, the end of regeneration is the ultimate regeneration when we are born again. And and by born again, what I mean by that is resurrected, right? When we are truly transformed in the consummate sense. Because to be born again, Christ alludes to baptism, And so the ultimate sense of that word, the consummate sense, is resurrection. And so the way that I kind of look at salvation, too, is the same way that I would approach eschatology. Already, not yet. There's an already reality to the kingdom, an already reality to the new heavens and new earth, an already reality to the age to come. And yet, all of those things are not yet in consummation. 
So we are all already saved. We are already united with Christ. We have already been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. There's an already reality. But none of those things are, have reached their consummation. That, that is not yet. And so that is the beauty of this, of this relationship is holding these two things in tension, the already and the not yet, in an eschatological sense, and then applying that same eschatological reality to salvation. So now the last thing I want to get to before I end this podcast is the, the topic of justification and sanctification. Because I think one of the big questions that a lot of people have is and specifically to me when they've looked at some of my posts is Jonah do you deny justification by faith alone imputed to us rather than infused and I'm going to sip my coffee here and hold you guys in tension the answer to that question is I absolutely affirm that justification is imputed to us and I absolutely affirm that justification is on the basis of what Christ has accomplished, not on the basis of infused righteousness within us that we are then working out. So I do think that the Catholic Church is in error on this point. And I think that when you look in church history, though you do see more of an emphasis on justification in the sense that the Catholic Church teaches it today, I don't think that it was exclusive to that, and I don't think that it was really dogmatically taught like that, until really Trent, right? The Council of Trent, when Luther came forward with his doctrine of sola fide, Trent, it was at that point that the Catholic Church came down extremely hard on the topic of justification and pronounced the ability for people who hold to Luther's view to be anathema. Which does not mean condemned to hell, by the way. It means just excommunicated from the church. And even then, it's it's not saying that all people who hold to this are excommunicated. It's saying that the ability to excommunicate somebody can take place. The process can take place if you find them teaching this. So I think some sometimes that needs to be cleared up. Thank you, Jimmy Aiken, for helping me to understand that better. Give credit where it's due. But anyways... Prior to that, justification was a subject that was being worked out and discussed, was not dogmatically taught the way the Catholics teach it today until Trent. And so because of that, I do think that we as Christians have room to understand justification in a different way, and I don't think that Trent has the authority to make an executive decision for what the church as a whole believes because even the orthodox even though their view is closer to trent their view is not the same as as the roman catholic church so the orthodox for example they don't they don't teach things like purgatory and stuff like that and there's there's a lot or indulgences and so there's a lot of things that i think the catholics let's put it this way i believe the catholics teach their doctrine of justification largely because of their sacramental system if they did not have the sacramental system that they do, they wouldn't be. At, it wouldn't be as. It wouldn't necessitate that specific of a definition on what justification is. But because they have such a firm understanding of the sacraments as being necessary for salvation, many of them, um, they would see that their understanding of justification is is absolutely essential in maintaining those as necessary. 
if that makes sense. So for example, if justification is not a process, if, if justification is not a process that is upheld through our working out our righteousness that's been infused, then there would be no need for confession as an essential means of being restored into a state of justification. But they insist that the sacrament of reconciliation is absolutely essential to salvation. And so because of that, they need that view of justification. So I guess my point is, is that I don't think just because they've said that based upon their sacramental system and their reading of scripture, of course, that that necessitates that the church as a whole must conform to that specific model. I just don't think that history has, has revealed that that's the way the church thought about justification. Um, and so I do think that we can nuance our understanding, but at the same time, I will say, I don't think that the Catholics and the Protestants are as far away from each other as they often think they are on the subject of justification, especially in recent years. I think that Catholics have done a much better job at trying to, um, speak, um, in a way that communicates what they mean by justification and sometimes it can be a little bit disingenuous in terms of trying to make it sound more appealing to a Protestant, even though it's not quite the teaching of the church. But I do think that in recent years, there has been a much better ecumenical discussion on justification. And I have come to respect the Catholic's position on it as being consistent with what scripture teaches um, in many ways, though I do think that my, my biggest problem is not necessarily their understanding of justification as a process, but their uh, understanding of it in such a way that necessitates their sacramental system. That's, that's my biggest problem. So justification in my mind is not the same as the reformed Christians would articulate it, however. So most Christians would say that justification occurs at the moment of salvation. The moment one has faith, they're justified, it's done. It's a done deal. Boom, you're justified. And the rest of it is just a sanctification process. Now, I would distinguish justification from sanctification, where the Catholics, they kind of merge the two. But what I would say is that justification has an ongoing reality in the Christian's life as we bear fruit. The difference is that the basis of my right relationship with God, the basis that I stand upon, is not the fruit that I bear in the Christian life or the works that I do um, as a result of the grace of God. That's not the basis. However, those good works that I do, fueled by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, they do merit me the declaration of justified over and over again. It's not a new justification that's being offered. It's not a growing in a justification that has been offered. It is the declaration that was made at the beginning of my Christian life being affirmed over and over as I live out my faith. And I think that this is consistent with what Scripture teaches so, for example, um, in Romans 4, when Paul is talking about how Abraham, he, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, talking about his justification by faith, the idea of Abraham being justified there, that, that, that moment that Abraham believed God and, was credited, and it was credited to him as righteousness, that's not the moment that Abraham started walking with God. 
It's, it's, it's just not. Paul is quoting from, I believe it's Genesis 14 there. And we really are introduced to Abraham, Genesis, or much earlier, a few chapters earlier. And in those chapters earlier, Abraham is already walking with God. He's already walking with his Lord. And so if Abraham is walking by faith and four chapters in or so, he then believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Are we going to believe that Abraham was not justified prior to this when he was walking by faith, when he was going where the Lord would take him? Well, I think the answer would be no. And then when we go to James chapter 2, James speaks of Abraham being justified too. And he speaks of a time when he was justified much later than Paul references. And Abraham was justified when he brought Isaac to the altar to sacrifice him. So both Paul and James use the word justified, and both of them are talking about Abraham, and neither one of the instances they bring up was the moment of Abraham's faith. So when we emphasize that justification occurs at the moment of faith, and it's at this moment alone that we're justified, and after that, we're living in that state, I don't think that that, it, that makes a, a full, it, do, it doesn't take the full context of scripture together. And James is explicit, too, in saying that that Abraham, his faith was active along with his works, and his faith was brought to completion by his works. And thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So James is saying that it wasn't fulfilled until this, this work was done. And so we have to look at this and go, okay, Paul and James are both using justification language. What are they talking about? Well, unlike the Catholic, I don't believe James is making it a point to try to communicate that Abraham, in the righteousness that he was using, was declared right before God on the basis of that. I don't believe that's what James is saying. I believe that James is saying that the fruit of Abraham's faith, which was rooted in God, God, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The fruit of that was carried out upon his, by his actions and the declaration of right standing with God, right relationship with God was then affirmed in that. So Abraham's justification is confirmed. He was justified by the fruit that he bore as a result of his the genuineness of his faith. And so as I, as I look at these two comparisons, I see this as an ongoing declaration of righteousness as the fruit of the Christian life is confirmed as being genuine. So for example, if somebody has, if they believe in God, but then they go and they live in sin, all of us would agree that they never truly knew the Lord or that if they did know the Lord, they had forsaken the Lord. And so we wouldn't look at them and say that they stand justified before God. Why? Because they're not enduring. They're not persevering. They're not bearing fruit. And so in many ways, it is very fair to say that justification, in order to be justified, one must have works. One must have works. And if one has no works, one is not justified. 
And so this is why I, I do stay away from the phrase justification by faith alone or sola fide, because I don't think that it communicates well what Protestants mean when they say justification by faith. So to me, again, I just want to use the language of scripture. James in verse 24 of chapter 2 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I can't read that and in good conscience say we're justified by faith alone because that stands in direct opposition to what James is saying. Now, some people might say, well, what we mean by it is not the same thing that James means by it. Agreed, agreed. But because the language is exactly the same and you have to clarify what you mean when you say it, we should not be using that, that phrase at all. It's just unhelpful because you can't use it without having to qualify it. And so for me, as a Christian, I want to use the language of Scripture, and Paul speaks about um, standing before God on Judgment Day and how circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't, are not going to mean anything. The only thing that's going to mean something is faith working through love. And so I think the best way to understand justification and to articulate it is that we're justified by faith that works through love. In other words, we're justified by a living faith. And so in other words, if our faith is not bearing fruit, if our faith is not bearing works, then we are not justified. If our faith is bearing works, we are justified. And so in that sense, faith and works are necessary for justification, though the basis of our justification is the work of Christ and not our own righteousness. And so this is where I would distinguish justification and sanctification. Sanctification is the fruit of justification, but they're intricately tied together. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. And I believe it's Calvin who emphasizes sanctification in the order salutis prior to dealing with justification sanctification is the necessary outpouring of justification so in other words if you're justified you have this process of sanctification you can't be sanctified without being justified and you can't be justified without being sanctified they are so closely tied together and that is why if one is truly justified they are going to be sanctified and if they're not, they're not justified. And so that's the difference between the Catholic position. The Catholics would say if one is justified, they're going to have they're going to be sanctified and while they're being sanctified, they're re, they're they're increasing that justification, that declaration of of righteousness. I agree, but here's here's the distinction. The Catholics would say the basis of that increase of that declaration of justified is found within the believer is found within intrinsically to them an innate righteousness i would say that is not the basis of the declaration the basis of the declaration is christ's work but the the the, the continual declaration of that comes as a result of the sanctification in the Christian's life. It's an affirming the work of Christ, in other words. Rather than looking at the Christian life and giving that declaration on the basis of how they're living and bearing fruit, that declaration is a confirmation, a continual confirmation of the fruit that they're bearing, not the basis. So the distinction is the basis of, of the Christian standing before God is the work of Christ alone. 
and the 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 sanctification in the Christian's life bears the fruit of the the de- the continued declaration of justified, but that is not the basis for that declaration. And I think that that's consistent, very consistent with the Protestant understanding. And again, the main reason that that many people I think misunderstand what where I'm coming from it with this is because I don't hold to perseverance of the saints. Because I don't hold to perseverance of the saints, I do believe that the the declaration of justified can be lost. One can be cut off from Christ. One can be in Christ and one can be cut off from Christ. And if we are cut off from Christ, we are not in right relationship with God. And this is why I actually really do like the new perspective on Paul. Avoiding tomatoes getting thrown at me through the camera. (laughs) Because... N.T. Wright and others emphasize that justification doesn't just have this individualistic sense of, am I good before God? Am I going to heaven? As many Protestants assume it does. No, the the emphasis of, of the new perspective is that Paul was talking about union with Christ in the context of belonging to the people of God. And so if we're declared righteous, if we're declared right before God, were ultimately declared members of his covenant people. And I think that this is a helpful way to look at it in many senses, though I don't think that the emphasis should be strictly there, as many of the uh, New Perspective advocates place it, uh, sometimes more than I think necessary. But I do think the emphasis there is, is important because if we're part of the people of God, if we are unfaithful to the covenant, if we are unfaithful to God, it's no different than Israel. Through their unfaithfulness, there were covenant curses. And one of the covenant curses was being cut off from God. And though God does not abandon his people and he preserves a remnant, which I would say are the elect that will undoubtedly persevere, it is possible for those who are part of God's covenant, who are declared to be part of the covenant people, declared to be part of the people of God, to be cut off due to unfaithfulness. And so in that sense, I do agree with the new perspective that the declaration of justified stands so long as we continue in Christ. If we do not continue in Christ, we are not justified before God. And so there is an eschatological final justification just as there's the initial. The initial declares what the final is already declaring. So if we are declared justified, we can expect that declaration to be made on judgment day. There's no differentiation between the two. But if we don't continue to reach judgment day in Christ, then this declaration that was made initially doesn't mean anything, and therefore this declaration on judgment day doesn't mean anything. And so I think the most... um, Let's put it this way. If we are justified, we will be glorified. And that glorification confirms that declaration of justified. But if we do not continue in Christ and are not glorified, then that declaration of justification can mean nothing in terms of our eschatological, uh, dec- the eschatological declaration of justified on judgment day. And so this kind of ties into that view of salvation being a process in the order of salutis. We're justified, but that justification still has an eschatological reality. And if we endure, if we remain in Christ, we shall hear those sweet words of justified on judgment day. 
But if we do not remain in Christ, if we're not faithful to the covenant, if we do uh, fall from grace through our own rebellion and sin, then we cannot expect to be justified before God on judgment day. And so this is, uh, I, ho- I hope that makes sense. And I, I, I just, I think it's really important that people recognize that I'm not denying the imputed righteousness of Christ because we are truly right before God because of Christ's work, not our own. And yet God says that we are created for good works. And what that means is that the works that we do are things that God has created us for beforehand that we might walk in them. And so if we do not walk in those works, it is because we are not walking in the grace of God. It is because we have gone our own way. Like sheep, we have lost our way. And so the necessity of good works is that it is the fruit of justification. And if that fruit is not being, if that fruit is not present in our lives, if we are not walking with God, if we are having fellowship with darkness, walking by the flesh, living by the flesh, and we abandon Christ, then we cannot expect that stand that, that justification to stand. We cannot expect glorification one day, and we cannot expect our salvation to be brought to completion. And so I think that it can be very detrimental for Christians to not emphasize the need for perseverance and endurance in the Christian life. And obviously, I again, I, I, I don't know why I feel like I have to keep saying this, but I, I want people to make sure they understand I am not saying that these things happen apart from the grace of God. Not at all. God's grace saves us, remains with us, preserves us, glorifies us. All of that is God's grace. We can't do it without it. But... Those things are necessary. And so ultimately, God's people shall be saved infallibly. It will come to pass. Not a single person will be in heaven that God was not expecting there. And there will not be a single person in hell that God was not expecting there either. God knows the outcome. God has chosen a people for himself. And yet within that, there is still the responsibility and the call for us to endure, to remain. And if we do not, by resisting the grace of God and falling away, We cannot expect our salvation to be brought to completion in Christ Jesus. I think that's about it. I think I've covered almost everything. This was a lot longer than I thought it was, but I hope this has been a helpful discussion. I hope those who might be a little bit confused as to where I stand can understand better. Again, I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. I feel like I am being faithful to Scripture. And my affirmation that I am being faithful to Scripture comes from the church, comes from the fathers. When I read them, I am affirmed that where I stand is consistent with the way the church has interpreted the Scriptures, consistent with um, the emphasis of the Scriptures, and consistent with, um, with ultimately what God commands of his people in salvation. And so... I, I really I really think that Protestants if I could if I could just say one more thing I think that a lot of Protestants emphasize s- starting their study of church history at the time of the Reformation and I think that this is kind of a problem because most people if I were to go up to a any Protestant and say you know tell me a little bit about church history they're probably going to start with Martin Luther and even if they go earlier it's pretty much going to be Augustine, Aquinas, and then Luther. And 
I don't get me wrong. I love Augustine, right? He's he's probably done more in my life than any other theologian has, but there is so much more to read, so much more to read and to study. And so many Protestants are really, really wanting to just cherry pick the, the church fathers to kind of formulate evidence that their theology is apostolic. And again, we cannot operate out of fear. We cannot. And I think a lot of Protestants, their defense of their theology comes out of fear rather than, let's, let's put it this way, we should be studying theology from all perspectives and challenging our presuppositions constantly. And the growth that I've had in my Christian life over the past couple years has stemmed from challenging my presuppositions. I used to be an Arminian. I used to be a dispensationalist. And now I'm an Augustinian post-millennialist. And the only reason that I went from that extreme to this extreme is because I actually was willing to put what I thought was true on the line and study it out myself. And if we are not constantly doing that with a true desire for truth, we are going to end up marrying ourselves to a Christian identity that is more concerned and more rooted in a tradition than it is with with Scripture and with the full counsel of the church. And so I guess, I guess my, my encouragement is just this. Challenge what you believe daily. Open the scriptures for yourself. Open the church fathers. Study it out. And allow God to lead you to what is true, even if it disagrees with where you stand now. Just straight up. Even if it disagrees with where you are now. I have lost followers. I have I have lost friends in some of the changes I have made to my theology. But at the end of the day, I could kind of I could care less about those things. And the reason I could care less is precisely because I am truly seeking truth. And wherever that truth is, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. And so I've had people say, you would never become Catholic, would you? Well, of course I would if that's where the truth is. I I don't think that's where the truth is in the fullness, but of course I would. You would never become Orthodox when they kiss icons and stuff, would you? Well, if that's where the truth is, of course I would. How many Christians are willing to say that? Now, and I'm not... Pump, pumping myself up here like, look, I'm, I'm willing to say that you aren't. I'm just saying, how many Christians are willing to say that? I think some of us are so fearful to look at anything outside of what we know that we're willing to just, we're willing to abandon truth at the cost of preserving our own stability. That's, that's probably the best way I can put it. I have talked with people, including pastors, who have literally pointed to things in scripture that if they were to change their presuppositions would make a lot of sense. And yet they have explicitly stated to me that they will not read scripture that way, even though it would make a lot more sense to read it that way. They would not read it that way because they are married to a specific theological persuasion that doesn't allow them to read that way. 
And in my mind, I'm going, well, if scripture will make more sense if you read it this other way, then abandon your theological presuppositions for what is true. So anyways, this evolution in my life and this continuing journey in my life has all stemmed from the reality that I believe that we must always be seeking truth, even if it challenges our presuppositions, and especially if it challenges our presuppositions. Follow God where he leads you. Study the church, study the church fathers, read their works, read it in light with scripture, allow scripture to inform um, how you understand the church fathers, and allow God to carry you where he wants you to be. And brothers and sisters, as always, let us strive for the unity of the faith, despite disagreements, over secondary doctrines and secondary issues. Let us strive for unity in the faith as we build one another up um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for watching, and I will talk to you all next time.